0: friends, Greg Kokel here, and I have a suntan. (laughs) That's because I've been in Wisconsin for the last three and a half weeks or so, and uh, been out in the boat a bit, uh, although not as much as we liked. There was a lot of work that had to be done on my boat, my new boat from two or three years ago. It's new to me, but uh, it's uh, it's actually 30 years old, but it was in great shape just found out a lot of electrical wasn't working, so my brother Dave, who came up to Wisconsin with me, um, and as we usually, as we often do frequently, almost usually in, in May, and we spend a few weeks together, and we we fish, and we hang out, and he's from Florida, and I'm from California, we rendezvous at MSP Minneapolis, and then we head out to our place in northern Wisconsin, and so he's very clever, and uh, and so he was able to rewire the whole boat though it took um, a lot of time. One day, 12 hours just working, and there were many days that were long days. But in between, we'd go out and fish, and we did we did pretty well. In fact, I posted some uh, pictures on my Facebook of some of the fish, and uh, one day, and for those who are fishermen, you might appreciate this, but the rest, um, uh, you, this won't make any sense to you, but uh, one day we caught four four-pound-plus smallmouth bass in the one day. I mean, just getting a four-pounder is a pretty cool deal. We got four in one day and a bunch of others. So I had actually uh, two for the that segment of time up there for May, and Dave had had three, so he had five. No, I had three, and he had—oh, I can't remember. We, we had plenty. It was good. <laughs> Weather was good, which was great because he was working on the boat outside and um, got some things done. The porch fell in at one section because of the snowfall, and it burdened the rotting timbers underneath, so I had an 86, all of that, and then we rebuilt it and put the old planks back on. And what was cool about it, these were 12-foot planks that had uh, been bowed because the whole thing kind of collapsed, and so the planks, you know, stretched with them. Uh, The snow collapsed it, but it was wet because the snow was melting, I guess, and it just bowed the planks. And so when I undid the planks to reveal the busted up stuff underneath that half of the deck, the planks themselves, the 12-foot planks of the surface of the deck, were all bowed. I thought, well, we can't use these. Dave said, just throw them in the lake. i will straighten out. And sure enough, they did. And uh, so we were able to rebuild underneath. It costs $100 for materials, that's all. And we rebuilt the uh, joist underneath, and then I put the new planks on, save one. Because one that I threw into the lake floated out and away. We couldn't find it. We rode all around trying to find it. So I had to buy another one. But that's all part of the adventure. And on the last day, that would be Saturday, the day we were leaving and driving to the local airport where I left the vehicle, because I'll be back next week with my family. A big black bear ran across in front of our uh, our car on the highway there on our way in. So uh, so much fun being up in. The North Woods. I, I I don't have any radical stories to tell you, um, but uh, it, it was just fine. It was a good getaway and a good rest. And now I'm back, at least for this week and for uh, next week, and then we'll uh, then I'll have the girls with me when I go back to our place in um, northern northern Wisconsin. I, I I wanted to tell you about a, a little image I have in my mind of something that happened. When I was uh, probably early in college, the late '60s, let's put it that way, and um, I had a motorcycle, and it's going to relate to something that's happening now that I'd like you to think about. I had a motorcycle; it was my first form of transportation. It's a beat-up old thing; it didn't work very well, but I, you know, I wanted it, so I bought it. And uh, at one point, I had considered painting on the the side of the motorcycle you know the gas portion of it i think it was a i think it was a honda you know the gas can there thing that you straddle i i thought about painting an upraised fist that said underneath it power to the people power to the people see now this is 69 and 70 or maybe 71 no no it was 1970 69 or 70 now, this was an image that kind of captured the spirit of the age, and I was identifying with the spirit of the age, but it did occur to me that my dad might object. And I could say to him, Dad, what are you objecting to? Don't you believe that the people should have power? I mean, this is a democracy it is probably the way I would have characterized it. So, there is a certain sense, then, that the image could be taken to represent something relatively innocuous, yet at the same time, it was clear that I was using the image to identify with something that wasn't innocuous at all the social movement of the era, okay, that period of time in our nation's history, the counterculture, the anti war movement, uh, this kind of uh, it, it, beginning of creeping socialism into our country. And, uh, I thought of that image today because of something else that happened the other night when I picked my daughter up after I'd just gotten home from an event she was at, at a friend's home. Nothing nefarious about it, or about my daughter for that matter, but it was, it was what she said that got me thinking, and she said it without, without thinking, really, and this is kind of my point. So we came to pick her up at her friends. She wanted to stay longer. She was on the balcony there uh, of her friend's house and we were on the street. Okay, come on down, we're going home, and uh I I want to stay. No you can't stay, it's time to go. And then she said I think I I think these were her exact words don't hate Don't hate Or something very close to that. Now, that really bothered me, and I wasn't mad at my daughter because I realized that what she was doing was just simply, reflexively offering uh, a slogan that has been uh, become part of their um, vernacular, okay, um, and yet it troubled me, and so when she came down dutifully, without really much fuss, and got in the car, I said, Honey, I did not want you to say that anymore. And it's not because I thought you were being rude to your mom or to me. I, I don't think you were being, it was just, just what you say, okay? But the thing that is just what you say is actually part of something much bigger. It's part of a narrative. And the narrative is that... If you, if a person does or says something you don't like, then it can be characterized as hate. Now, again, she wasn't really characterizing my wife's and my refusal to let her stay at the event she was at, at her friend's house, as hate. It wasn't hate. She knew it wasn't hate. This is just a thing to say. But notice how the language, the vernacular, the the lingo of a movement, a social movement, that in my view is very deleterious, very destructive, that if you say something or act in some way or believe something that I don't like, I can label it as hate. Do you see how it's penetrated into into our culture? E- even with my daughter who goes to a really good Christian school with a lot of good Christian kids, as far as I could tell. Goes to youth group every... Um, Every Sunday, and and so, but somehow this got into her vocabulary. So there is this. What this underscores, and remember, I'm, I'm making a distinction here, just like I did with the raised fist. There's a way you could characterize the ways, way the the raised fist, power to the people, as something innocuous when, in fact, it was really part of this much more serious um, cultural debate. And, uh, and and cultural movement. In the same way, you could characterize this, hey, don't hate, in an innocuous way, which I think it was in her case. But it's really a piece of a larger narrative. And you see how quickly or how effectively, how efficiently these concepts get into the minds of p- our people. And I don't mean just our young people. So here's the next piece of this little puzzle here I'm putting together, the first the ancient reflection from 60 years ago, then this throwaway comment by my daughter, and um, and, and then the conversation that my wife was having with some friends about the issue of same-sex marriage. And these were both committed Christians and uh, understood that same-sex marriage was wrong, but were somewhat sanguine about the idea of attending a same-sex marriage if they were invited by somebody they cared about, especially if it was a family member. Now, of course, my wife was not uh, comfortable with this, and we was weighing different ways of engaging them in conversation uh, to get them to think more biblically about this, because it's it seemed to me that their attitude was was somewhat cavalier and the comment was well our friends and there was a, an a, there was an event at, at issue in this conversation and i think it was a family member they know where we stand and after all jesus associated with sinners um and so because my wife had asked what would jesus do in a circumstance like that good question and uh and of course, their response was, "Well, Jesus associated with sinners." Now, you and I both know, when you think about it, this is not mere association with sinners, because n- none of us on just my side of the table here stand a reason is, say, is saying we should not be associating with people who who have different views than we have on moral issues or live ungodly lives, just like Paul says in what First Corinthians five. Then you'd have to go out of the world. I'm not saying you shouldn't associate with godless people in the world, those are the people we are sent to uh, to reach. Um, and so that's not our view, that we don't associate. But you see, this isn't just a mere association. Um, this is an occasion of celebration of uh, of something that God would consider abominable, and therefore Jesus and so, how is it that we could participate in such a celebration in good conscience? And that that's the question that was being put to the, my wife's friends, and it's something I want everyone to think about, because this is not really meant as a screed against them. It's, it's meant as, again, another example of the culture forming us in a quiet and, and uh, but persistent fashion, little by little by little by little. It was a couple years ago, I think, that when I came back from Wisconsin and I told you of a conversation I had with some college students in a Christian family there who loved the Lord, but they were going to—is it Bethany? I think Bethany in St. Paul, Minnesota, that's the college there. They went to school there, and there was a, they had a, a LGBTQ Bible study. Gay Bible study for the LGBTQ contingent on the campus, and they were just kind of sharing with me, somewhat matter-of-factly, though they're a little bit of raised eyebrow. Um, and my reflection was, "Isn't it, isn't it interesting that this is not scandalizing to Christians? The idea that you could have a, a gay Bible study on a Christian campus." Does anybody see the conflict there? And I think when someone pauses, and it was raised kind of in that context, pauses to reflect on it, and they were saying, yeah, this is kind of weird, but that it, 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 it does kind of roll off a lot of people's backs who are Christians, because, yeah, well, we know we live in this culture that does this, that, and the other thing, and, you know, that's the way it goes, and that kind of thing happens. All right, so I asked the question when I talked about it here on the show, what if there was an adulterer's Bible study? What if that was it? You, you had to be an adulterer in an adulterous relationship to come to our Bible study. Or this was the focus. If you want to be an outsider, maybe you're just thinking about it, you could come. But we're going to have an adulterer's Bible study. Now, of course, that would be scandalous. But what, what's the difference? Why would one be scandalous and not the other? And the reason is, is because in our case nowadays, adultery is not somehow culturally approved. There isn't a contingent in um, in the church that is adultery friendly, or whatever. There isn't a whole body of literature now trying to demonstrate biblically that God is happy with adultery. Where there are all those things with regards to homosexuality, and yet it seems to me the sin in both cases is just as egregious. And so this is an, this is an example of the point I'm making. How? Comfortable, we end up being in a culture where there is this kind of sin, and it's not just the comfort; it's the, it's the like I said before, the sanguine attitude that well, you know, not so bad, no big. As in no big deal, you know. Reading in First Corinthians seventeen the last couple of weeks, and here's Paul going into Corinth, and he's grieved by seeing all the idols there. It grieves him. And so, because of that grief, he's engaging. Okay, but it's kind of like we just kind of take it in stride. Now, there's a certain sense in which that's okay. Uh, that is, we, we understand the world is going to be the world, and in a certain sense, we're not shocked. But it's not just LGBTQ. It's an LGBTQ Bible study in a Christian on a Christian campus. That ought to really shake us up but we come, we become socialized to it. It seems kind of normal, okay? And as Francis Schaeffer put it, what is unthinkable yesterday is thinkable today and ordinary and commonplace tomorrow. Uh, this is the sense of being morally velocitized is the word that I've used to describe it. You know, when you're Go from a standstill to 60 miles an hour, you feel, whoa, I'm moving here. Okay, and then a few minutes later, it doesn't seem so fast. And you go to 80, whoa, that's fast. A little bit later, you get used to it. It doesn't seem so fast. What's happening is you're going faster and faster, and things are getting more and more dangerous, but you're getting used to it so you don't feel the danger. That's being velocitized, and that's what happens. It has been happening in our culture for a long long, long time. And my comments now are kind of a bid for you to be aware of it, to guard against it, to not be velocitized by the culture, to in one sense not be surprised that the culture would do what it's doing, but at the same time not get really morally used to it, but see it for what it is, something that's really... Dangerous, something that's really bad that a society has given in to these kinds of things. There's one other thing, though, another piece, the final piece to this puzzle, and that is the sermon on Saturday. I'm sorry, on Sunday. <laughs> I came home on Saturday, got up to went to church on Sunday. And in the sermon on Sunday, it was about Matthew, or make that Mark 13. Now, Mark 13 is a parallel passage to Matthew 24 and to Luke 21. It's Mark's characterization of the Olivet Discourse. And in Mark 13, he is talking one of the things in the Olivet Discourse, that is the last week of Jesus' life, the discourse that he gives from the Mount of Olives has to do with persecution of Christians. And uh, and Jesus is warning that the end is near. That the, the, the end of one age and the moving into the next age, they're on the cusp. And we're moving into a new age it's called the end times. Now, it turns out the end times is a long age, a couple thousand years. But nevertheless, Jesus is talking about what that next section of time, that next era, is going to be like in uh, on the Olivet Discourse. And there in, in Mark 13, he, he describes that. And he, he says, um, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So that's a piece of the Olivet discourse. He also mentions something similar in Matthew chapter ten. This is earlier in his ministry when Jesus sends out the disciples in their first missionary journey, so to speak, and uh, and he warns them of trouble to come. Same idea: family members betraying other family members. You are going to come before prefects and uh, emperors, etc for his namesake, to give uh, an account for the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will be there to help you. This is in Mark 13 as well. But you'll have members of the family betraying each other, because this is part of the price that one pays to be a Christian. Now, um, we're getting closer to that. Regardless of what anybody thinks of the end times, it is clear that this element has been accelerating, okay? That, that there is more and more strife between families because members of the family want to be faithful to Christ. Okay, but what does faithful to Christ actually look like? And so now I'm coming back to the same sex marriage deal, okay? Yes, they know how we feel. But we want to—they uh, know our Christian convictions, but we're invited to this same-sex marriage, and so we want to just be, be uh, re- helping the relationship, encouraging the relationship, and so we're going to go to be supportive of the relationship to show them love. Now, standard stand to reason, we have very particular guidelines about this. People ask us, we tell them. simple. Don't go. Because a marriage celebration is a celebration of marriage. This isn't a marriage. It's something that God hates. It's a distortion of God's purposes. Why are you celebrating?" Well, it turns out the reason you're celebrating is, at least ostensibly, to support the relationship you have with them, because we're light in their darkness, and at least we can have the relationship. But, of course, that only goes so far, doesn't it? We're not saying don't have a relationship. But our suggestion is don't go to the wedding, but invite them to come to your home three weeks later as a couple, and continue the relationship without celebrating what ought not be celebrated by a Christian. So there you can get you can be faithful to Christ and also promote the relationship, and you know, that's a great way to go about it. But part, part of me suspects—and I'm not pointing the finger at any individual here, I'm just looking at the trend. Part of me suspects that the that the reason people want to go to these events is not to build the relationship to bring the light of Christ into their life, because after all, they know where we stand. It's to avoid conflict. This is a case often when children are rebelling against the parents or attacking the parents um, in view of this relationship, that this gay marriage relationship, and the parents don't want to go along with it, but they know they're going to get the anger of their children if they don't support it in that way, so they go. In a way, that's to maintain the relationship. I get that, but really, isn't it to just avoid persecution? At what point do we say, okay, no, I am going to live with the hardship that results from me being faithful to Christ. Here, uh, in Mark, Jesus says, this is going to happen. So, so where where are we going to draw the line? Or will we continue to just say, well, for the sake of relationship, I'm going to go along and go along and go along and go along? In fact, you know, that somebody knows where you stand, um, and as as if that's kind of a um an escape clause, justifying going to the wedding strikes me as odd, because if they know where you stand, that you're against this thing and, and that same-sex marriage, and then you go and celebrate one, what does that communicate to the person who you just said knows where you stand? I think it communicates that you no longer stand there; you're standing somewhere else. If you thought this was wrong, then why are you supporting it? That's the question. Um, When you say you believe one thing, and then you act in a completely different manner, there's a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. So all you're really showing to the other party is that you're a hypocrite with regards to your views. Now, I'm going to acknowledge right now that This is a hard decision for many to make, especially when family members are involved. And their intention is not hypocritical, okay? They're trying to weigh these issues. I'm pointing out that this is a liability. This is something you may not have thought about. It may be that some are rationalizing a decision that's that's sanitized a bit by building the relationship, by a building the relationship, or maintaining the relationship rationale. When maybe something else, an unwillingness to suffer for Christ's sake at some level is really what's motivating this. Um, Because Alan Schliemann on our team, his brother-in-law is is homosexual. His aunt is a lesbian. Uh, He majors in these issues. He really understands all of these things. And this is his counsel, too, what I've just offered you. Oftentimes this doesn't help the relationship at all going to these things and being supportive. It just seems to indicate that you don't really believe what you say you believe. So people have to make their own decisions on this, but there's, I think there's a lot at stake. And what is at stake is slowly being compromised by a narrative that is inconsistent with reality and inconsistent with God's Word. It's not faithfulness to Christ. And Every one of these little moves that adjustments we make, I'll avoid the word compromise, because that's pejorative, and I think sometimes people do this in good faith. But these adjustments that we make just, just move us a little bit more inside of that narrative, okay? Uh, And the more we're moved inside of the narrative, the more comfortable it feels because we are not getting the pushback that the world would give if we said no. I'm sorry, but no. And by the way, there's plenty of justification for doing that because the other side is really committed to the idea of personal authenticity. Do you believe a person should live authentically according to their views? Of course I do! That's why we should have same-sex marriage. Okay, and that's why I can't go to one, because I'm living authentically uh, and consistently with my own views as a follower of Jesus. By the way, I put it in those terms rather than saying as a Christian, because we are not just committed to a way of life. We are not just committed to a system of actions or values. We are committed to an individual, a person. And when we when we violate or compromise or just adjust, that is adjustment in light of the relationship with an individual. It isn't just fudging on the rules. So please think about all of that. And uh, especially as, as these months and years go on, because things are just getting more and more bizarre. And the temptation to go along to get along is going to increase. And when, when is it that we're going to finally, and any individual is going to finally draw the line and say, no more? And I'll tell you something, by the way, my pastor drew the line last Sunday. God bless his heart. And he's talking about this passage, and he's saying that I want you to know, congregation that I am going to preach this word, what it says, and what it means, and live by it, no matter what. And I am I, I am ready to be arrested for that conviction, and I may be. Not today, not tomorrow, maybe not next month, but maybe next year or the year after. I'm ready to do that for faithfulness to the Scripture. Of course, he got a lot of applause, which was good. I was getting choked up. It was such a wonderful statement. And he's <laughs> he's 30 years old, but he looks like he's 17. But he's a great Bible teacher. He does exceptionally well at sticking with the text and teaching the truth. And that's what he did. So if here our pastor is willing to take the risk of being arrested, and he announces this, and he's got... A wife and two children, two little kids, a four-year-old and a one-year-old, something like that. But he says, look, this is where I draw the line. I'm preaching this word. If I get arrested, I get arrested. If I perish, I perish. Well, if our pastor is willing to do that, be willing to get arrested, aren't we willing to suffer some, you know, a little pushback in our social circles or even familial circles to be faithful to the truth? Just a thought. All right, let's take a break, and we'll get to calls after this on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event?
1: Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues in science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie,
2: today. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose monthly. For personal assistance, you can email Ocean Wilson at ocean at str.org.
0: Okay, friends, Greg We're back with you here on Stand to Reason, and uh, let's go right to the callers. Uh, First caller is Carla in Texas. Hello, Carla.
1: Hello.
0: Hello. Hi.
1: Hello. Can you hear me?
0: I sure can. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Nice to talk to you, Carla.
1: You too. Thank you. What's up? Um, I wanted to know how to respond when a family member Tells you that they're transgender. Mm-hmm. They have legally changed their name from male to female. Uh huh. And demand that you call them by their new name or they will have no contact with you.
0: Mm. Okay. Um, we've actually talked about this a lot at Standard Reason, and we have a very um, th- well thought out way to respond. Okay. And so I'm going to make uh, because this falls broadly in, uh, in this bro- falls into a, a broader category of of names and gender characterizations, pronouns, and all that other stuff. Okay, and so what we've said is when it comes to names, names are conventional. That means people can make up whatever names they want, and uh, and many names are clearly. Um, what's the right word I'm looking for? They, they, can, they can represent a male or a female, like Pat, for example. Pat could be a male or a female, and there's a lot of names like that. But nevertheless, a name is what a person cho- chooses to be called, and so, out of courtesy, since names are conventions and they aren't necessarily tied to a sex, we should call people what they want to be called as far as their name goes. When it comes to pronouns, that's a different matter. Because pronouns are not conventions. They identify, in a sense, pieces of reality. They reflect the nature of reality. Human beings as a species are, are uh, binary in gender. They're male and female. That's why they can reproduce and so we have words to describe males and words to describe females pronouns him her he she and in fact this is the way even now with the gender confusion it's still the same thing we call she's she but the she is determined in the in the new sense now by what they believe in their mind not what their body says and in our view that's a, that is a, being inconsistent, that's is, that is, um, not just being inconsistent, it is saying a lie about the way the world is, um, and also encourages a way of thinking about oneself that is not even healthy for that person, so it's not loving your neighbor. So when it comes to these two categories, using names and using preferred pronouns, we think you should use the name a person chooses for themselves, and that's not a problem. If Bill wants to be called Mary, okay, you can, you can, we can call him anything he wants to be called. But if 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 Bill, who is the male, wants to be called Mary, fine to call him Mary, but he's still him. And we should not be um, forced to use the pronouns that the person wants us to use when we're talking to someone else about that person, because you don't use pronouns when you're talking to the person. You don't say, hey, him. You say, hey, you. <laughs> you only use he, she, her, him in third-person references when you're talking with someone else. And so that's where we draw the line. Um, so I think, simply put, Carla, you're it's fine for you, to use the name that he wants you to use of him, since that's the name he chooses for himself, and names turn out to be a matter of choice. Not so with pronouns.
1: But um, here's the other problem, though, Uh, because when you're speaking in Spanish, the pronouns change to male and female. They're Hmm. not general. Huh. So, uh, like, like a, a noun, like the patient would be. You have to say it's a female patient. It's not just patient, meaning male or female, and that's where it becomes a problem.
0: Are you a nurse or a doctor? No. Oh, okay.
1: No, this is this is a family member, and my husband and I are going to be visiting this weekend. And I want to be a little bit more prepared.
0: Yes, of course. Well, that's smart. Plan in advance. So um, let me. I'm, I speak a little Spanish, but un poquito, just enough to order dinner, you know, kind of thing, and get around if I have to. But I, but I don't. Um, I, I can't. I'm trying to figure this out. Um, so, so when you use, um, well, a person's name,
1: certain words, it has to be. It, you, you do define if it's. If it's male or female,
0: yeah, I understand that the words themselves can be male or female. I mean, they have an uh-huh. a at the end or an o at the end. But how does that relate to using, um, oh, it, it, like l el or ella? That would be he or she, uh-huh. right? Okay, right. well, well, that's the same thing in English. It's a he or a she. It's a different, it's a different pronoun for a different sex. So, yeah, it, but
1: how do I how do I use that when we're talking or I'm talking with the, the sister? My niece and she's telling me, you know, telling me things about him, and I'm trying to avoid using male, female or male words, and I can't.
0: Oh yeah, well, I, like yeah, that's a tough situation, um, and I'm, I'm, I guess, to me, it's hard enough balancing the pronoun matter without all of the gendered words that you use to describe. Um, uh, like if you said he was, um, hermosa. That's like uh, hermosa is like beautiful, right?
1: I would have to say hermosa or bonita.
0: Uh, I'll say okay. So the word that you describe also has a gender uh, in a certain okay. sense in Spanish. Well, I think what you'd have to do is be consistent. You would address, and this is what we want to do. I mean, it's much more difficult for you to do workarounds, obviously. It's going to be much more apparent that you are not consistently doing what your family members want you to do. Um, Because, but but I think the proper answer would be you use the name that they want, but you, whatever... But you use the the sexual words that are appropriate to the person's sex, and in Spanish you got a whole bunch more of those words than you would in English because right. because they're the only words we have that are appropriate to sex are are pronouns, but you have all kinds of different words that have male or female genders in the words, and you uh-huh. apply the male or female well, you'd have to apply the male words to your expression or description of the male person who has a female name and is transgendered. Now, the problem, of course, with that is it really seems to cause a ruckus, because now it isn't a simple little workaround. You continue to declare um, your your lack of acceptance of that person's um, viewpoint regarding their gender. And uh, I, I don't know that I can help you anymore at this point, like with a workaround, because I'm not familiar enough with the language to be able to help you out. Um,
1: I, I guess what I will do is, like on this, what I just finished listening that you were saying before you came live, ask, do you believe each of us should live authentically? And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: To live what? What was that last word?
1: Authentically, is what you Authent- had said. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. Authentically. And that is
1: what I'm trying to
0: do. Yes, ma'am. And it's and you're authentic in the sense that you're being faithful to your deepest-held convictions, and that means you're faithful to God. So, um, you know, there's. I think some of these circumstances are a lot harder than others, and and I think if you are conscientiously trying to work through this, in a gracious way. Listen, God has a lot of grace for you trying to figure out your own path in this. I'm not going to be legalistic about this, all right? Um, and sometimes there are certain relationships that are much more difficult, and, and one path of uh, pursuit creates all kinds of other problems that create more harm. Than, than, uh, than other paths. So, you ha- that all has to be taken into consideration. And it never occurred to me that when you're speaking in Spanish, you've got all of these gendered words that you use to describe people, and that creates a, a much bigger difficulty, right? So, um, I- I'd be curious, uh, maybe if you call back after your time with, uh, with your family, how things worked out but i'm not I'm not optimistic because you already on uh, notice that if you don't go along, you're going to be rejected from the family. That to me, is a bigger issue. Why is this well, look at, I'm not surprised in the one hand, but if you try to stand outside of the the whole social disorder that this has created, why would somebody not just be respectful of you? And uh, as a family member who don't agree with that view, and so you're not going to go along with the verbiage, the words, why don't they just respect you and say, okay, well, I can see, I I don't like it if you don't use my preferred pronouns and don't use the words that are gendered according to my new sex, but I get it. You know, everybody's an individual. No big deal. I'm not going to make a big deal. They do make a big deal out of it, and and then they're going to punish you for that. And and this is this is all part of the dynamic, and it's the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about on the Olivet Discourse, and uh, so you know that's you know those are all the things that we have to keep in mind here, and uh, there is a social dynamic that has gained momentum, I I think, because there are powerful spiritual forces at work here. It's Ephesians six stuff, you know. Our, our 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 adversary are not the people in the family. It's the it's the spiritual forces in heavenly places, forces of wickedness that are promoting these schemes in the lives of people, and they're responding because they're blinded. Right. And we have to keep that all in mind. All right, Carla.
1: Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I took notes of what you said. And I will contact you to see how it went.
0: Okay, Carla. I look forward to it. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thank you so much. All right. God bless
0: you. Thank you. Uh Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That never occurred to me. And you have, well, languages where the words themselves have genders. And you use the gendered form of that word in a way that's appropriate to the gender of the individual you're talking about. Boy, that's a mess. Complicated. All right, let's uh let's go to Detroit and Ryan. Hello Ryan.
2: Hey Greg, thanks for taking my call.
0: Motown, what they used to call Motown. Do yeah. They, do they still call it Motown?
2: I don't. I'm just visiting for work actually. Oh, so. I
0: see. Or they used to call it Motor City too, but
2: Yeah. That's
0: because they used to yeah. make a lot of cars there. I don't know if they still do that, but anyway, what's on your mm-hmm.
2: mind? Yeah, well, first I just want to say a brief thank you to you guys. I I'm uh, 29. I've been listening to you guys since I was 19, I think. So uh-huh. um, you uh-huh. guys have been huge help in my uh-huh. walk with Christ. So, wanted uh-huh. so to say thanks. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, ask you about a challenge I encountered uh, related to some of the recent studies uh, that have seemed to show that um, modern humans and Neanderthals interbred, mm-hmm. um, which I had already um, seen. I've uh, a big fan of Hugh Ross's Reason to Believe right. uh, website. So I've already seen on their website um, a while ago that they also concurred and said like, yeah, this does seem to be the case. Um, but uh, one objection I encountered, um, and I'll actually have to hop off the call. I'm calling you in between meetings after I lay this out. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, the objection I encountered, just to lay it out real quick, uh, was, uh, it was kind of a two-part thing. So the first part, um, it said, Well, the question was, uh, would the fact that this interbreeding took place um, undermine uh, or invalidate, like, the biblical account of human origins? And I think the rationale behind uh, the person saying that was they're viewing it through an evolutionary lens and kind of seeing, like, well, if these two could interbreed, maybe that's uh, evidence for common descent, um, if they had, like, a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second part was... um, would this the fact that this interbreeding happened um, bring up any serious questions about, you know, how we view, like, the biblical view of human identity? And their example of that was, um, you know, if these offspring, uh, since these offspring apparently existed, you know, would they have souls? If they did, you know, what does it mean to be a human if they only had one human parent? All those kind of questions. So, that made sense, um, and those are kind of the questions I just wanted to run past you. So,
0: okay, uh, sorry
2: wow. to have to hop off immediately. Oh <laughs> uh, man, okay. I can just I can just go back and listen to the rest of it. All uh, right, after my are run. So, thank you, Greg, for, for the okay. call. Okay, you're welcome, yeah. Ryan. Sorry, you.
0: sorry to give you the short trip on um, conversation, but I've got the points down. I wrote them down. I'll see what okay. I can do to Thank you, Greg. Okay, you're yep. welcome. All right, buddy. So, um, yeah, I'll, 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 I didn't push the button. He hung up, so I should have pushed the button. It would have been nicer, but. Nicer sounding. Okay, the challenge. I I put a question mark here when he said, I have been challenged by the idea that apparently humans and um, Neanderthals interbred. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the challenge was, but he gave me two points. I was going to ask him that, and he gave me two points. And does the fact, we'll just take it as a fact right now because Hugh Ross seems to, who I respect a lot, seems to think that the genetic information indicates that. Does the, the fact undermine the biblical account of biblical origins? Uh, or uh, the notion of, uh, uh, maybe, evolutionary common descent? I, I, don't, I don't see how that follows, okay? Um, let's just say God created, uh, let's say in the biblical sense, God created de novo, de novo, as a new thing, Adam and Eve human beings they weren't part of a descent of uh, hominids that that ended up at some point being declared in a certain sense as human with the human soul and made the image of God or whatever but rather there were you, you, you God didn't take existing creatures and somehow transform them into humans made the image of God but in fact made new creatures whether this is an old earth characterization or a young earth, it doesn't matter. The point here is, did God make Adam and Eve new and unique then? If he did, that does not preclude the possibility of them interbreeding with some other creatures that were not humans made in the image of God. And notice, I'm not using biological terms here now. I am using a phrase that can be identified As a biological category, human, but I'm identifying as human as a hominid made in the image of God. Hominid, you know, like creature like us, but made in the image of God. That's the distinction. Not that there was not some other creatures that were hominid like enough like humans that they could interbreed. I mean, what do you got? Horses and donkeys can interbreed. That's how you get a mule, right? Well, that doesn't mean that donkeys or horses uh um were part of a phylogenetic chain or something like that or that darwinian evolution must be the case just means you got two similar things that are able to create to create or to to um uh yeah i guess cre- interbreed and and have offspring now there are limitations to the offspring because mules um are not fertile they cannot breed but The point I'm making is, it's certainly possible to have two different things that are similar enough to be able to interbreed and create offspring, yet still uh, remain distinct. They are themselves in their own category. So I don't know that the fact that there was interbreeding with humans and uh, Neanderthals somehow undermines the biblical account, the biblical origin of humans. All we, all we know is biologically there's enough similarity that they can produce something else. Okay, now what is it, and this raises is the second question, what is the something else that they produce? Well, it's interesting, and I hadn't thought about this until I'm making this um, comparison about the mules. It just came to my mind. Oh, they're kind of like this, right? Well, a mule is not a horse, and a mule is not a donkey. A mule is the product of a horse and a donkey, and it's something different. So I I wouldn't say that a mule is a kind of a horse or a mule is a kind of a donkey. It's its own thing. It's sui generis. It's in its own category. And so following that parallel, I think I'd be entirely comfortable saying, if human beings, true humans, that is physical humans who also spiritually, soulishly, bore the image of God could, could interbreed with some other creature that did not bear the image of God, it seems to me that the product would be a third kind of creature, not a Neanderthal and not a human made in the image of God. That's it's a speculation never thought about that before now but it, it just now that we've got the donkey horse mule example in in zoology right maybe something like that could apply in this question seems to make sense we don't have to assume that human beings are no longer unique and as humans and we don't have to assume that this this hybrid is also human it's not it's if Neanderthals are not human and humans are human and they interbreed, they produce something that's an amalgam between the two. Not Neanderthal and not human, but some third kind of thing. It seems to me that follows. Now, the question about the soul, though, is interesting. And uh, that's because, um, it, and this is when you watch movies and stuff like this, you hear about soulless this, and here's a human without a soul, and this creature's doing this stuff, and they've lost their souls, and all this stuff. This is, this is Hollywood nonsense. If any creature that is sentient, that is, it is aware of itself, its surroundings, has senses, sensual experiences, has thoughts or beliefs or sensations— um, displays acts of will, has motives. Any creature that has any of those things has a soul or is a soul, because these are all characteristics of non-physical things. They are all characteristics of selves that are uh, and that are th- that are not physical. Okay, rocks don't have thoughts. Thoughts are immaterial. They have propositional form or content. They don't have chemical content. They don't respond. They directly respond. uh, The quality of the thought, whatever, or the substance of the thought, doesn't respond to the laws of physics and chemistry. They're in a different realm, held by, possessed by, something that is also in that realm. The soul has the thought. The soul The immaterial soul contains, after a fashion, the immaterial thought. The immaterial soul experiences and feels the immaterial sensation. Uh, The immaterial soul exercises an act of will to accomplish an end. Maybe that act of will is to have another thought, maybe that act of will is to move a portion of the body that it is united with to accomplish something physical the point i'm making is doesn't matter whether the individual that is acting has is a result of some other amalgam of creatures if that individual has an interior life there's only one place for that interior life To exist, and that is in the soul. These are functions of the soul. So that means Fido has a soul, and Fifi has a soul, and Fido would be the dog, and Fifi would be the cat, etc., etc., etc. And this is the biblical view. So I could support this biblically, and I could also support it philosophically, which is largely the way I've just been arguing. The view of the Church and the Bible from the very beginning is that all Sentient creatures have invisible selves that have these kinds of experiences and capabilities or, or uh, aptitudes that I have um, have just been describing. And, uh, and so, if a human did mate with a interbreed with a Neanderthal, they would produce another creature that's, if conscious, which it would be, because all animals have a conscious life of some sort. Um, would also have a soul of some sort. The difference between human souls and animal souls, or let me back up and put it this way, the difference between humans and animals is not that humans have souls and animals don't. The difference is that humans have a peculiar, unique kind of soul, different from animals. Their soul bears the image of God. And that is a soul that is, it, it, I'm just going to assert this now because it seems to make sense to me, though I, I can't really give you additional evidence, that that whole human being is the ensouled human being who is made in the image of God. And an offspring through a Neanderthal that creates a third thing would not bear the image of God because it's a different thing entirely, just like the mule. Okay, there you go. hope that helps. Sorry I couldn't chat with you more about that. Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is the show. Give them heaven, friends.